0: All right, thank you, Sean, for for reading that for us. Uh, it's a, always a privilege to be able to bring God's Word. And uh, this morning with Zach off at youth camp, so th- that's my privilege to be able to preach. Um, and as many of you know, that whenever I do preach, uh, we're just going through the book of Hebrews. So uh, today we've been brought to this point in chapter 6 to hear from God in these very encouraging uh, verses. So let's pray before we dig into the word. Father, your word is a gift. It is true. And it brings us great assurance and confidence and joy in Christ. So Lord, I pray now during this time, you'd speak to our hearts through the scriptures that you would sanctify your people, that you would save those who are not yet your people. We pray that uh, you would build us up in the faith. And that we might have strong encouragement as this passage speaks of in life and ultimately in eternity with you. It's in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> what is confidence? If you, if you search out the success experts of the world, you'll commonly hear confidence set forward as necessary or even the most important quality to have in life, you can take classes, you can read books, you can watch YouTube videos, and they're all there to help you become more confident, or at least how to appear more confident, right? So others will uh, see you as confident through body language and other techniques. And generally, what is meant by confidence in these contexts is that there's a belief in your own abilities or, or maybe the abilities of others with an emphasis on how to outwardly project that certainty so that other people share that same faith in you to succeed. Well, our passage in Hebrews this morning presents us with a distinctly Christian confidence. The biblical and gospel-centric confidence that we find here in chapter 6, verses 13 through 20 is so much greater than the confidence relied on and pursued in the world it doesn't seek to manipulate others into putting their trust in us or getting them to do what we want. But instead, it is a rock-solid certainty that comes from God, his word, his character, and his work in the gospel. And so this brings a steadiness and a steadfastness to our lives, far greater than any self-confidence ever could. And this is the confidence that we need more than any other and it's why the title of today's sermon is You Need Christian Confidence. Now how do we get to this topic here in Hebrews? This these verses come after a lengthy and sobering warning in chapter six, which uh, came after the write of, writer of Hebrews introduced this idea of Christ being a priest in the order of Melchizedek in chapter five, verse ten. And then from that point, he takes an entire chapter and a half long detour to call us to spiritual maturity, to keep clinging to Christ. And then at the end of that detour, this is what he says in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, just before our passage. He says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So this call to have assurance and hope and to patiently wait and persevere in the faith leads to this passage on Christian confidence. After this, he's going to return to the topic of the priesthood of Melchizedek, but God sees this issue of having assurance and confidence in his promise as so vital that he addresses it here first. I think we can grasp what's being said in this passage by breaking it up into four primary points that help us trace the main ideas. So uh, let's start with the first one, which is very simply that God made a promise in verse 13. Let's read it. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So remember that in verse 12, just before this, we're called to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit. The promises. Well, that's Abraham, right? He's, he's of course, a prime example of this. And to drive home the teaching of Christian confidence, he decides to expand on how and why exactly Abraham patiently and confidently persevered in faith. Now, if you're familiar with Abraham's life, you know there are actually multiple occasions throughout the account of Genesis where God either makes or reiterates his promises to him. But there's only one place in Genesis where God adds this oath, where he swears by himself. And it is the account of Abraham offering up Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. So we're going to turn there. If you want to turn there with me, we're going to read a big chunk of that so we can remember what happened. Genesis chapter 22. And we'll start there in verse 1. <clears throat> Now jump, jump ahead to verse seven here. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring, offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So the Lord promised blessing to Abraham and his descendants through Isaac. They would become so numerous that they'd be like grains of sand or stars in the sky. And the nation that they would become would have military victory. And this blessing would extend through them to the entire world. Big promises for this guy. So God made a promise to Abraham. So what? Does that mean anything to you and me? Well, Scripture makes clear that the ultimate fulfillment of the promise... That all the nations of the earth would be blessed through this offspring is the coming of salvation in Christ to all the world, to people of all races and tribes and nations and languages. And of course that includes the final fulfillment of all that God has said He will do for His people, the church in the New Testament through Christ as well. So God made a promise to Abraham. Has God made promises to you? To me? He has. Promises of eternal life, of sanctification, of seeing him face to face, resurrection, righteousness from God by faith, forgiveness of sin, the complete and final removal of sin in heaven, the end of all suffering, pain, and tears, that even the worst things in this life are intended for our ultimate good. Yes, God has made promises to you and me. So that brings us then to the second point this morning in verses 13 through 18, and that is that God guaranteed that promise. He made a promise to Abraham, then he guaranteed that promise. Let's read verses 13 to 18. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So God made a promise and he guaranteed that promise. And he did this with an oath when he said in Genesis 22, by myself, I have sworn declares the Lord to swear by God himself was the highest oath that a person could ever make. It was the most solemn way to commit to doing what you had agreed to. There were times when Abraham swore to the Lord and uh, similar oaths were made throughout Israel's history. It was a far more serious thing than uh, what we hear or often say today, like, oh, I swear this or oh, I swear to God, you know, uh, these are words that should not be flippantly said. So it made sense for people to swear oaths by God, given that they did it, uh, acknowledging that there is an authority and a power higher than them that was going to hold them accountable if they didn't follow through with uh, the oath. So here it's saying that, that since God has no higher authority, and since he is in fact the ultimate authority in the universe, then he swore by that very same authority and power on himself. He couldn't have made a, a higher oath. He couldn't have communicated his promise in a more solemn and certain way. He's also setting up for a similar argument about the promise of God to make Christ a priest, after the order of Melchizedek in chapter 7, verse 21. Just peek at that real quick. Chapter seven, twenty-one. Same, Same idea. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So, in verse 16, the argument is that people would swear oaths in solving legal disputes, and that would essentially serve as a binding agreement. So think about just in terms of signing a contract in today's world. It's really not that different. You sign your name, and you're on the hook now. You, you've you confirmed and validated that you're going to follow through. You're going to pay what you agreed. And if you don't, there will be consequences from a higher authority. So why did God swear an oath? Verse 17 Tells us. He did it to show more convincingly that there is no way in the universe, no possible situation, never a single doubt that this promise will ever go unfulfilled. No chance. Now, this is true enough if God simply made the promise without an oath, right? The very word of God is enough because, as verse 18 says, it is not possible for God to lie but he swore the oath to show the heirs of the promise, and that includes you and me here this morning, if we are in Christ, that there is nothing that's going to stop him from making good on his word and following through 100%. The purpose and plan of God is unchangeable. You see that in verse 17? And he's going to prove it. How often does this thought bring you encouragement and confidence? How often is it even something that you think about? How often is it an attribute of God that, that you worship and thank him for? Christian confidence starts with who God is and the fact that his purpose is unchangeable. So what are these two unchangeable things in verse 18? You can see that whatever they are, they're meant to give us Christian confidence. So it's pretty important that we understand. And it's really straightforward. The two things that bring us Christian confidence are the promise and the oath. The fact that there is an unchangeable promise and the fact that this promise is communicated along with an unchangeable oath from the unchangeable one. So God made a promise. God guaranteed that promise. And uh, let's now move to the third point in this passage in verses 15 and 18. And it is, so we must hold fast and wait. He made the promise, guaranteed the promise, so we must hold fast and wait. Abraham is presented here as an example to follow. He patiently waited, it says in verse 15, and as a result, he obtained the promise. What exactly is going on there? That's, that's a question we need to ask because Abraham definitely didn't see the nation of Israel, right? He didn't see this multitude of descendants and he wasn't alive when the ultimate offspring, Christ, came into the world. But he obtained the promise. So, so the question is how and when? We can answer the when fairly easily, I think. Uh, the context demands that we see the author referring to the promise made with the oath in Genesis 22, after Abraham showed that he was willing to sacrifice, sacrifice Isaac. So in some way, he obtained the promise right then and there. And understanding this helps us to understand the how question. And so the key here is that the fulfillment of this promise was tied specifically to Isaac. Abraham and Sarah received the promise of a son years and years before Isaac was ever conceived and born. There's this extremely long period of waiting and trusting God to deliver on this promise. And that's not to say that Abraham never faltered during his wait. He certainly did falter and sin when he used Hagar to get an heir. But the con- And of course, the consequences were not good. Abraham was not sinless, but he was, in the big picture estimation, a man who waited on the Lord to do what he promised regarding giving him and Sarah a son. Well then, fast forward to Genesis 22, years and years and years later, and now Isaac has been born. And all of Abraham's hopes are tied to Isaac's life at this point. The promise was to be fulfilled through him, specifically in his line, and yet God tells him to sacrifice the son of promise. So when Abraham shows his faith in being willing to obey the Lord, even in sacrificing the son of promise, and then at the last moment was commanded to stop, he obtained the promise. Isaac was still there. The promise was his. And now it was guaranteed and secured with an oath from God Almighty himself. We can get a little bit more insight on this in chapter 11, verse 17. Just flip ahead a couple pages there. So here in 11, verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This helps us understand how Abraham obtained the promise at that time. Now, this is far more than Bible story time in the book of Hebrews, isn't it? It's meant to drive us to hold fast and to patiently wait on the Lord. Is it reasonable for us to say that? Does this passage really refer to us when it refers to the heirs of promise in verse 17? Well, listen to how Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29 puts it. It says, for in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now listen to what he says in verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So absolutely, if we are Christians, Hebrews wants us to view ourselves as heirs of the promise. And that's why in verse 18, in referring to the same group of people, he says that we are those who have fled for refuge. What a beautiful and accurate way to describe us as Christians. Those who have fled for refuge. Those who have seen that they need to be saved, rescued from sin, and from this wicked age. Those who see that the only way to escape and be delivered is to find refuge in the shadow of the wings of the Lord. So that when his wrath is poured out upon all the living and the dead, we will be safe. Psalm 57 verse one says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me for in you, my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. So are you someone who could be described in this way? Have you run to God himself for salvation from his judgment on your sin? This is what Jesus died for. All you need to do is realize that you need to repent and flee from sin and flee into his welcoming and protecting arms in Christ. God is calling you to find refuge in him. Now, what is all of this meant to do in our hearts? Verse 18, that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, the fact that he says this here implies something important. You and I need encouragement to keep going and to cling to Jesus and his promises. We live in an age of discouragement. We live in a reality where sin still exists in our hearts. We live in a time where Satan is actively seeking to discourage us from clinging to Jesus. And for these reasons, we need more than just a little pinch of encouragement. He says that the absolute certainty of God keeping his promises to us brings us strong encouragement, powerful encouragement. It's mighty encouragement. It's got some juice, some meat, some zing to it. It's a lot more than just a little extra encouragement. So Christian confidence is effective in encouraging us to press on with Christ in hope. Christian confidence is so much more than just agreeing intellectually with some doctrinal truths that God is unchangeable and that he's faithful. Christian confidence is what happens when you let those truths become so deeply rooted in your heart and so personalized in your soul that it then drives your whole life forward in perseverance in the faith. Like it's a force that blasts you forward towards the goal of clinging to Christ all the way home. And that's exactly what he says we need to do. Hold fast to the hope set before us. The holding fast to Jesus and the promises of God in him are a huge emphasis in Hebrews. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 14, there it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. To hold fast is to hang on no matter what. It's to cling to the hope of the gospel with all that we have, understanding that to let go would result in plummeting to our demise. Do you want to hang on to Christ all your days until the Lord calls you home? then bask in the goodness of the reality that our God is unchangeable and he has made promises to you and he has sealed those promises with an oath. There is nothing more certain in all of reality than the, than the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. This is the truth that faith sees and grabs hold of and never lets go. And the way he says it here is that we are to hold fast to our hope in Christ. You've probably heard that Christian hope's not the same kind of hoping that we tend to, uh, think about or talk about, like hoping for something that may or may not be. Like, I hope I get that job or that raise or I hope we have a boy next time or I hope someday my spouse will change. Well, this is why Christian hope is not that kind of hope. It's because God has assured it. He's assured that it will come to pass. Do you remember that in Genesis 22, right after swearing the oath, God said this to Abraham, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Isn't this what God the Father himself has done for us? Romans 8 verse 32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but that gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Our God is a God of action and not mere words. And so the faithfulness of Abraham was a foretaste of the faithfulness of God in the giving of his son. And so the point of Romans 8 verse 32 is to say that if God gave his son, then there is absolutely no contingency or any possible way that he's going to waste the sacrifice of his son by not fulfilling all that he's promised to do through him. This is powerful, strong encouragement for you and for me today and every day. And that leads us to the final point in the final verses in this passage today. So point number four is that Christian hope is Christian confidence the writer spends verses 19 through 20 helping us further massage this Christian confidence into our hearts by helping us understand the nature of hope. And it really just boils down to this. Christian hope is Christian confidence. Let's read verse 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So when he says at the beginning of verse 19, we have this, he's talking about our hope in the gospel. That is the, this he's talking about the fulfillment of the promises of an unchangeable God who sworn an oath to keep them all through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this sure hope and now he's going to give us two visuals to help us grasp it and to build Christian confidence in us. Two visuals. The first one is an anchor and then the second one is a visual of walking past the curtain in the temple and entering into the very presence of God. So let's start with the anchor. What does an anchor do? Well, it keeps the ship where you want it, right? No drifting. That thing stays on the ocean floor, and regardless of what else happens with the wind or the waves, that boat is in the same position, and the captain knows exactly where he is the next day. Well, this is no ship anchor. It is a soul anchor. And so Christian confidence does the exact same thing for our souls that an anchor does for a ship, Christian confidence prevents spiritual drifting. It keeps us centered when the winds of trials begin to howl in our lives and the waves of sin begin to rise and threaten to push us far off course. And even when the subtle and gentle and yet deadly lullaby of worldly comfort on a calm and pristine sea would ever so slowly lead us miles off course. Christian confidence is our spiritual anchor. So that's the first visual of Christian confidence here. Let's look at the second one. As he puts it, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. The hope that we have in Christ enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now you probably know this is referring to something very specific in terms of the way that uh, Israel was instructed to worship in the Old Testament. In the temple or the tabernacle, the place behind the curtain was the most holy place, the holy of holies. And it communicated to the people that God was holy, set apart, and that he was to be revered and that he was entirely separate from sin. And no one was ever to enter past this curtain aside from one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And on this one day, one man was in, well, was permitted to enter in. That was the high priest of Israel. First, he'd have to make sacrifices for his own sins and the sins of the people. And then he would enter into the most holy place and he would sprinkle blood around the mercy seat as he made atonement for the sins of the people. And again, this is the only time anyone ever entered into the inner place behind the curtain, as verse 19 puts it. Now, if you're familiar with Hebrews at all, you know that Jesus as our great high priest is one of the big ideas that the letter is going to be driving home over and over again. Uh, the first part of chapter five is all about how Jesus is a better priest than Israel's priests, and that's what's going on here too. Now, if our hope was tied to the Old Testament sacrificial system, this is how this passage would sound. We have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where the high priest of Israel goes in once a year over and over again with no end, making atonement for himself and the rest of us because he's a priest in the line of Levi. That's not a very anchor-like hope, is it? There's actually a couple of earth-shattering differences between that and how it actually reads. And the first and most obvious one would be the, the difference between Jesus and the high priest of Israel being the person that enters in. Jesus is one and the same person. The high priest of Israel would change over time. So the one who went in last year may not be the same as the one who goes in this year. And that leads to a second key difference. Jesus has gone in. The Israelite priest goes in, comes out. And then next year, he has to go in and out again. The past tense here is used to communicate that this is a one-time done deal. Jesus has gone in. He's never come out. He doesn't need to go back in, and he most certainly will not. And then third, what did Jesus do when he entered past the curtain into the presence of God? Well, he entered as a priest, as a high priest, and he made an offering. And that offering made atonement for sin. And that offering was the sacrifice of himself upon the cross. And that sacrifice was on our behalf for us, verse 20. And there's no need for any more offerings because he is who he is, the son of the God, son of God in the flesh, perfect, holy, righteous. Now why does he use this visual here in describing our hope and building Christian confidence in us? Because the certainty of God's promise is confirmed in the life and death and resurrection and high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Because through Jesus, we are purified and able to follow him into the very presence of God. The curtain was torn when he died to convey that exact thing. A God who's unchanging, promise-making, faithful, and truth speaking, who gave himself to purify us and grant us access to him and relationship with him for all eternity is an anchor for our souls and the grounds for confidence and hope in our lives. Verse 20 continues. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now, obviously, Jesus has gone before us, right? He's preceded us in entering the presence of God as a priest on our behalf, and he's paved the way of salvation for us through his death. But also, the picture of sailing ships in the ocean and anchors uh, actually continues with this word, forerunner. In ancient times, there were actually boats called forerunners. And so, as larger ships would come into the harbor, they would sometimes be able to be unable to make it all the way to the docks if the tide was low because of large sandbars in between them. And so in this sort of situation, the large ship would stop a good distance out from the port, and then a smaller boat called a forerunner would actually take the large ship's anchor with it and head into the shallows closer to the docks. And then the forerunner would drop the anchor, assuring that until the higher tides came, that ship wasn't going anywhere, and it would assure that that ship would make it into the destination. Jesus Christ is that forerunner. The high priestly offering of himself is our sure hope. It is the unshakable reality that keeps us anchored near the docks of heaven until the high tide that brings us home for eternity rolls in. That last part of verse 20 says that Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. <clears throat> Talking about Mel- Melchizedek in detail is for next sermon in chapter 7. But uh, notice one key word here, forever. The office of Jesus Christ as a high priest of his people is an eternal office. The work of Jesus Christ accomplishes eternal results. So he isn't going anywhere, and he won't cease to be our high priest at any point in the future without end, forever. I will hold fast to the anchor. It will never be removed. Words that we've sung in recent weeks. Are these words that resonate with your soul? Or do you find yourself being overwhelmed by doubt and fearful whether you'll make it to heaven or not? For a true Christian, to be overcome by doubt and fear is to be like a captain of a ship that has forgotten about the anchor in the midst of a storm. The captain has forgotten that the forerunner went and dropped that anchor in an absolutely unshakable place near the docks. And so every torrent and every gale and every flash and crash of thunder and lightning strikes fear and uncertainty into the captain's heart and he believes he is lost. Now, on one level that seems kind of silly, doesn't it? I mean a captain knows sailing well, it's his occupation, it's his bread and butter, it's what he lives and breathes. So forgetting about something as basic as an anchor and not allowing it to influence the way that he handles a storm is nonsensical. Well couldn't you say the same of us as Christians? Couldn't you say that the hope spoken about in this passage and in the Bible is a basic, elementary and essential aspect of following and believing Christ. That the anchor for our souls isn't some hidden, advanced idea. And couldn't you say that living life in fear and doubt and uncertainty is essentially failing to remember that there is a soul anchor connected to us and embedded in heaven? Isn't living life in this way a failure to trust in the anchor? In other words, isn't a life characterized by fear, worry, and doubt a life that needs Christian confidence? And the reality is, of course, that we all need Christian confidence. We we all continue to struggle with sin. Uh, we wrestle with the fallenness of this world, and that fallenness doesn't stay out there on the periphery of our lives. It invades our homes and our hearts. It takes away our loved ones. It brings suffering and pain upon us and others. It shatters our dreams for what our earthly lives might be. It batters and bruises and eventually even kills us. And yet the anchor of God's unchangeable promises in Christ and of the finished work of his son Jesus upon the cross doesn't budge. Not even a little. And that means we are safe. God is our refuge, the hope of the gospel is our anchor, and this means that nothing can take us away from our heavenly destiny, which is eternal, joyful, peaceful, and free of all the horrible things that this world assaults us with. So yes, you need Christian confidence. I need Christian confidence. This is not some suggestion that God has for us, like, hey, hey, you should try some Christian confidence if you want. This is a spiritual need like food, water, or physical needs that you've got to have if you're going to survive. You've got to have Christian confidence if you're going to cling to Christ to the end. Let's pray. Our God, uh, we stand in awe of you, the Almighty who has Made promises and has secured them with an oath, and then has proven it by sending his son and giving him up for us all lord there's such such great confidence available for us if we take the time to dwell on these things and meditate on them and let them penetrate down into our hearts and our souls so Lord, help us to to remember uh, we have this soul anchor. Help us to hold fast to this hope that we might press on all our days until you bring us home to be with you or until Christ returns, which we look forward to with great expectation and anticipation. Lord, we love you and we thank you for uh, this time this morning and we thank you for uh, the sure and steady anchor that we have in Jesus' name, amen.